Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to Rachel Augustine Potter, who is the author of Bending the Rules, Procedural Politicking in the Bureaucracy. The book is published by University of Chicago Press in 2019, and I have the real pleasure to have Rachel with me today. Rachel, how are you doing? Doing well. Thanks, Heath. Yeah, it's great to have you on uh, with this interesting book. Um, I know a little bit about you from reading the book, uh, but maybe you can just share a little bit about uh, yourself. Uh, Where are you now? Um, uh, We'll talk a little bit when we talk about the book about where you've been in the past. So maybe you can give us the, the brief version of who you are. Sure. I'm an assistant professor of politics at the University of Virginia, and my primary research interests are in American political institutions and the bureaucracy in particular. And the question that motivates much of my research is understanding when and how unelected bureaucrats influence the policymaking process in the United States. Yeah, the the um, the book itself is is really interesting in so many different ways. And one of the main reasons it's interesting is that you come to this material with a good deal of firsthand experience. Uh, I wonder if you could describe for us a little bit about what you did in government, uh, when you were involved in the rulemaking process. You know, what what was the vantage point you had? I don't know if you were doing this before your graduate studies, but what was this? What was this work that you were doing? Yeah. So before I was a political scientist, long, long ago, it feels like um, I worked in the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, which is called OIRA for short, um, and it features prominently in the book. Um, and really what that is about, the office does, is it is the central clearinghouse for draft agency regulations. So agencies draft regulations, and then they send them over to the White House for review. And I was one of the people that read them and told the agencies whether we thought that was a good idea, a bad idea, or um, where they needed to improve their analyses. Um, So it's really an oversight role. Um, And because of that, I got really familiar with the notice and comment rulemaking process. Now, now, uh, most people, political scientists and non-political scientists, when they think at all, if they ever think about the rulemaking process, it's not the thing they think of um, as significant and important. You make a very strong case in the book that that is the case. I wonder when you were you were pitching this book for publication, sort of how you you know what your what your pitch was about what what uh, what in general makes this process much more important, significant, interesting than your layperson might might understand. Well, I think one thing that speaks for itself is actually the policies that are created through rulemaking. So we can point to things like the Environmental Protection Agency and how they've been able to address greenhouse gas regulation in recent years. Um, That was done through the rulemaking process. We can look at how uh, tobacco regulation has happened in a lot of cases in the United States, and that has not happened through Congress acting. It's actually happened through the Food and Drug Administration. So I think you know, I think people are becoming more aware of this process. But as one person I interviewed for the book uh, commented, and this person was a former general counsel at an agency, um, most people have a better chance of being struck by lightning than understanding the notice and comment rulemaking process. 
And I, I, that really spoke to me. So here we have this important policymaking process that only a very small number of people in this country really understand. And I think when you kind of view it through that lens, it's a, it's a natural sell for an editor to say, well, maybe she's onto something here. Yeah. And, and so, so you give us the chance to join a very, very small group of people who understand more than just nothing about the rulemaking process. In doing so, you divide the process up into drafting, consultation, and timing, at least for some, some portion of this. I wonder if you might describe each of these briefly. And then just a little bit about your theory of, of uh, procedural politics and why what what might seem like a quite non-political process, in fact, is is very political and also political from the side of the bureaucracy, not just the side of, of members of Congress. Right. So if we step back and we look at this process, which again is a way that law is created, it's it's really laden with procedures. Um, and agencies take many, many steps and many years to create just one of these regulations. Um, and, and so what I did is I tried to parse it up into steps that we could view systematically across agencies. So I thought about things like, okay, let's look at the drafting of one of these documents. How is it written? Um, and how does that vary across agencies and even within agencies? And, and what I observed is that we just see a tremendous amount of variation. So in, in how long these policies are, how, how much analytical uh, analysis is done in them. Um, and then I looked at another step of it. So the, the basic idea behind notice and comment rulemaking is an agency drafts a proposal. Then they bring it out to the public for comment um, and lots of people can weigh in. And then they publish a final binding regulation that says we took into account those comments and here's why we're doing what we're doing. Um, so that's the basic infrastructure. Again, there's tremendous variation in it. So I looked at not just the drafting of the policy, but how consultation is conducted and how that, again, varies across rules. And then um, the timing of the rules. So we see a lot of uh, differences in when agencies actually finalize things. So um, some of the rules that I looked at took over a decade to finalize, and some were finalized in just a matter of months. And so a kind of examining the variation in that. And, and by looking and parsing uh, the process into these smaller chunks, what I'm able to observe is just the absolute differences that occur even within agencies and how they manage the process each time. And one thing that jumped out at me was, okay, there's a lot of variation, but why is this occurring? And what happens when agencies do a process differently uh, uh, for each different role? And what came out of that, what comes out of that in the book is my theory of procedural politicking. This is the idea that procedures aren't sort of neutrally, we'll just see what happens and what's convenient for this particular rule. But the agencies really want to want these rules to become final rules, uh, binding law, because there's lots of consequences for them if they don't. And so they use these procedures in ways that make sure that the rules are protected from the political process and actually do survive because agencies start a lot of these things, but they don't necessarily finish it. So they, the procedures can give them that added bump. Now, I think an example here would, would be helpful. In, in, in chapter two, you provide just that, which is uh, you discuss the rulemaking associated with the No Child Left Behind Act uh, passed by Congress and signed by George W. Bush. 
specifically the so-called 2% rule. I wonder if maybe first you could just describe what the 2% rule was and, and what it illustrates about the, the politics of rulemaking as, as you've just described in theoretical terms. Okay. Yeah, that's a great example. So here we have Congress passing this law, broad law, No Child Left Behind, um, which gives lots of requirements for the Department of Education to step in and say, well, actually, how is this law implemented? And that gives bureaucrats a lot of discretion in sort of setting the details um, that really are going to matter to how the policy is felt on the ground. So one of the concerns with No Child Left Behind is how students who are disabled are, um, are tested. What are the, how do we handle testings and do we make exceptions um, for students with special needs? And so the Department of Education back in 2005 decided that there should be two, up to 2% of students should be able to be held to different testing standards um, within a school, a school district, I should say. And so they actually did this through rulemaking. Now, one of the things I argue in the book is that th they were really expecting at that point in the, the process of this, this policymaking, a lot of blowback from the community um, who was already by 2005 becoming very skeptical of, of things that were happening with uh, the increased accountability associated with No Child Left Behind. And because the agency anticipated this negative response, and again, they wanted to get uh, this policy finalized. Uh, I argue that the way they drafted this policy was intended to sort of shut out certain groups. So one of the things I, I look at is the actual abstract. Now, if um, listeners are fellow academics or people who do a lot of academic reading, then they're familiar with the idea of an abstract, right? This brief summary where you tell people, hey, this is what you're about to read and what it's a, a, a summary of what's going to happen in this more detailed document. So I look at that abstract, and one thing that's really immediately obvious is just how jargon-laden this, this abstract is. It's just so dense. It's hard to get through. Even I think you know your most astute lawyer would really uh, struggle to get through it. Um, and But the critical point is that the agency never says the word um, testing <laughs> or uh, the threshold, 2%, which again, if you're going to search on some search engine to try to find this policy and, and comment and engage with it, which is the intent of publishing these things, you might use those search terms and it never comes up, right? And I argue that this is just one of the sort of ways that procedure can be used to sort of when you want people to be shut out, to shut them out. Now, it would seem to make sense that that if that's a, a tool available, and it sounds like it would be a pretty good tool to use, that agencies would would use this all the time. Um, you analyze just just this question, which is um, the two factors, which were rule readability and rule length. Um, uh, I wonder why why these two variables matter. You've you've discussed it a little bit, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit more. Uh, about um, these these factors and how you measured them, because um, it seems like that that kind of matters here. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about what you found predicted uh, readability and also length. Right. So, so in the case of the two percent rule, we have like a very you need a nuanced understanding of that policy in order to evaluate sort of what the strategic considerations are. 
Um, and, and I think that, and I try to do that as much as I can in the book to try to look at specific cases and think about what the incentives and the politics of that particular policy issue is. But what I really try to do in the book is kind of take a broad view of this process across lots and lots of agencies. Um, and by looking at the texts themselves, um, there's very little I can do in terms of uh, nuanced consideration, just given the volume. I'm looking at thousands of texts here across many agencies in a 20-year data span, um, which is what I consider in the book. And so looking at the sort of text length and the readability are two common metrics that we can apply to all of these texts. So this is a, a way I, I, I do try to do both breadth and depth in the book. And, and this is sort of an approach, at, an attempt at breadth. And so looking at uh, things like readability, um, the argument I'm trying to make is that there are times when making something less readable, like in the 2% example, are desirable for an agency. And there are times when courts in particular might think about how much an agency has considered issues uh, at length. And that's when we might think about things like length of a, of a rule mattering. And really, I'm talking about the discussion and the rule. I look at the, how much the agency discussed different issues in the preamble. So, so that's why I look at those two issues or, or metrics in that chapter. But I think there's a lot of different ways we could think about uh, procedural politicking. These are just two aspects in particular that I, I consider in that chapter. And what did you find predicted these uh, readability and, and length? Yeah, I think I can you know, sort of um, speculate on what many people would, would assume, but what did you find uh, mattered most in predicting how readable or unreadable these rules are and whether these are rules are short or long, complex or not complex? Right. So the key factors in predicting this, so so I should say what I'm really looking at for is thinking about the political environment and how agencies respond to how OIRA, for example, uh, my former employer, um, was view, was positioned with respect to the rule and how the agency is thinking about its relationship with courts and likelihood of being overturned and how it's thinking about Congress at that particular moment in time and whether their rule is going to be favorably received. So these are sort of separation of powers oversight considerations are the types of things I'm thinking about in in the book, generally. Um, and in this chapter, what I find really matters for the way uh, the rule is drafted in terms of the text is court oversight in particular, which I think, you know, a lot of law scholars would not find surprising because courts really do pay a lot of attention when they're reviewing agency regulations to the actual text. Members of Congress may be a little bit less so, um, right? And so that makes sense. Um, so the real driver I find in this chapter is courts and court oversight and agencies thinking about court oversight. But I do find in other chapters strong effects for the other branches. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. No, we have talked for however many minutes and we, we haven't really talked about the public yet. Uh, the, the rulemaking process and the apparent openness to comment, uh, at least in the way in which we, we often think about it, is, is a way to promote transparency, open government, uh, even, even some forms of democracy. Um, where do those concerns fit into uh, the story you tell about rulemaking? Are, have they been effectively shielded by procedural politicking? 
uh, or do they find their way into this process in some fashion? Well, I think that's a, a good question because we have two ways of thinking about the way public participation is managed in the notice and comment rulemaking process. On the one hand, as you as you just described, people think of this as a, as a real democratic participation uh, ideal, right? The way that we can get the public to engage with the bureaucracy. On the other hand, we have a lot of law scholars um, who for decades have argued that this is what they call kabuki theater, that agencies go through the motions because they have to legally um, to engage with the public, but they're not taking it seriously. Um, and, and there's no real sort of strategic sense to that. It's just that agencies don't want to deal is kind of the argument made. What I'm arguing is that agencies are strategic about how they manage public participation, that sometimes you get people involved. And if you anticipate that those people are going to say nice things and support what you want to do, that it makes a lot of sense to get their, their support and participation. And we see lots of evidence when agency heads go to testify before Congress, they'll say things like, we got, you know, 500,000 comments in support of this rule. You should really be supporting us. Um, so, so that's a way that it, it can help agencies. And I think the way that people have maybe when they're sort of a little more skeptical of this, the democratic elements, they see it as hurting agencies. So people often write to agencies and complain uh, or raise problems, red flags with what the agency is doing. Um, and that, um, and from a strategic sense, I argue that that's a, a, a case where an agency might want to limit the feedback that they get on a particular rule. And so this is a strategic, uh, strategic consideration in, uh, in my view. Yeah. And, and what about the role of organized groups? Um, that's, that's who I think those who are kind of more informed about this typically think for those that have worked in Washington, the, the process of, of commenting is a big thing that uh, interest groups do. Um, do they, do they fit in here or, or what is, what is the role that they play and how, how effective is, are they in, um, influencing this process? So I think they are influential in the process, but that they don't have a direct mechanism to sort of push agencies to do what they want, right? In in the strategic calculation where I'm considering uh, oversight, right? So interest groups can provide feedback to Congress, to the courts, and to the White House so that through the separation of powers system is how their influence is operationalized. Um, and and um, not that it doesn't mean that these groups don't uh, engage directly with agencies, but just that when they want to put pressure on agencies, that that is how pressure is often um, observed. Now, your, your, uh, at least your data uh, ends in 2014. Uh, are there any reasons to think that the the Trump White House is using the office that you used to work in in a different way, uh, applying a different procedure and a different approach, or uh, uh, using this office uh, to to meet other aims? Are you sort of uh, aware of of how the Trump administration is using the OIRA office? Yeah. So. So you're right that I cover a 20-year data period from 1995 to 2014, and that is a very nice period to study because all of the sort of norms and legal infrastructure surrounding the notice and comment rulemaking process is very stable during that time period. So it allows uh, sort of a clear analysis. 
what's happened since uh, the conclusion of this study is we've seen a lot of things changing in rulemaking. We've seen Trump be elected with a an explicitly deregulatory agenda, which is really different than any of the presidents in my time series, or even maybe a comparison can be made to Reagan. But even then, I think there's um, some caveats. So a new agenda and a new use of sort of the institution. So um, one way that uh, Congress can oversee rulemaking is through the Congressional Review Act, which is a way basically for Congress to veto individual regulations. In my time series, it's used exactly once. And since Trump has been elected, it's been used more than 15 times. So again, we see an evolving way that uh, that oversight is being conducted. And that's also reflected in the courts, where we see that interest groups have made lots of public statements saying we are going to use the courts as an active way to uh, push back on Trump's deregulatory agenda, which not to say that groups hadn't been using the courts before. Of course they had, but I think the level at which that is, uh, is um, happening is, is a, it's a different level than we've observed in the past. So all of this to say that there is um, a whole evolving landscape um, that's different in rulemaking now than it was, say, in 2003. Yeah. Uh, Rachel's book, again, is Bending the Rules, Procedural Politicking in the Bureaucracy. The book is published by the University of Chicago Press in 2019. Rachel, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Heath.